The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to have my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Elliot, let's kick it off with you. All right. So, you know, this is called This Week in Intelligent Investing, and thematically, we're supposed to talk about, uh, you know, long-term wisdom, but also what's relevant today. And every once in a while, the investment world coalesces around one point of tension. And we're at one of those foremost junctures right now, I think, with the debate about inflation and the Fed policy shift, and whether this is something that is, call it um, transitory or something more enduring a change in the status, effectively the status quo on the inflation or disinflation front of the last couple decades. And, you know, I thought I'd try to take my stab at a couple things, lay out some scenarios and hear some feedback from from, uh, John and Phil and see where this takes us. So one of the things that really caught my eyes, and we'll share this chart in the show notes, is if you look at uh, real expenditures on goods and services going back 20 years. It's fairly consistent. You could obviously see the recession following the financial crisis, and the impact there was far more acute on goods than it was services. In other words, you know, most of the recession was in goods, though where you could see it clearly in services is that there had been a pretty consistent trend, and that that trend broke, right? So it didn't decline as much as goods. But for the most part, you know, if you smooth it out, um, goods and services had been on a fairly consistent trend for you know twenty years, heading into January uh, of twenty twenty. Um, and in that trend, goods had actually been gaining on services in real expenditures. And suddenly, uh, you know, with COVID, you see everything fall off a cliff, and then with the normalization, goods demand soared. And services demand like very slowly inched its way back. So to put numbers to it, um, the demand for goods at its peak in the post-COVID period was over 20% higher than it was before COVID. Um, and today at the highest level of services post-COVID, it's still down about 3 to 5% from where it was heading into COVID. So, you know, let me state it clearly, goods demand soared well above trend, services demand dropped, and has not yet recouped its trend. And so when you think about what that does and what it means for inflation, you know, our economy was built to handle 
a slow and steady grind upward in the volume of goods. And you suddenly have a step change in the demand for goods. And when you think about what that does in those old like supply-demand charts from uh, your economics classes, that step change you know, outward in the demand curve drives price upward. Um, and so the big question becomes, do these things normalize? And if they do normalize, you know, if services demand returns at the expense of goods demand, you get to a more um, balanced economy. And perhaps you even had big investment in handling this new volume of supplies on the goods side that makes it even perhaps disinflationary on the other side for goods in particular. And I think that's an interesting debate, and it's something that I've been wondering a lot about. And it's hard not to believe, you know, when you think about services, arts, entertainment, recreation, travel, even a lot of healthcare, you know, people are putting off routine doctor visits, um, like general practitioners, revenues are down quite a bit. Um, you know, services uh, have really been uh, taken a beating. And, you know, you may have traded a vacation uh, to the islands for a living room couch and a new TV, putting further pressure upward on goods, right? But that's not going to be the case forever. And so, you know, I think that's a really important framing for the inflation debate. If you believe that this is something other than transitory and this is more pernicious, you need to believe that there's something more pernicious in this surge in demand for goods and something more prolonged in what it takes to get to a more balanced economy once again. And then the second big debate is around, you know, labor and what that has, uh, what, what that means for inflation. And I do think, you know, this changing composition put similar uh, pressures on staffing up for handling the volume of goods, uh, which competes with, you know, low wage jobs in the, um, in, in the services space. And, uh, you also have the impacts of stimulus uh, that drove some of the goods. Uh, but with labor, you know, I think that's a little bit of a tougher nut to crack because right now, you know, one of the biggest problems you see the Starbucks near me closed for a week and it was because literally every person got sick in there who was working there with Omicron. And so you wonder what sort of strain and pressure that's putting and how long that'll last if we, you know, obviously remain in this COVID environment for a prolonged period of time where things are very reactionary like this, it's going to last a lot longer than if it's not. Um, one of the really interesting things that we need to think about is how the Fed's going to respond to all this. Are they going to treat it as something more pernicious and try to nip it in the bud and risk, you know, putting the economy into a recession? Or are they going to try to walk a tightrope and communicate their intent while not um, actually, uh, while, while trying their best to not tip things over too far. And there was a quote that Powell had in his November press conference, uh, sorry, December press conference that really stood out to me that I think was uh, worth reflecting on and worth thinking about. So he said, you know, in addition, when we communicate about what we're going to do, the markets move immediately in response to that. Financial conditions don't wait to change until things actually change. They change on the expectation of things happening. And I think what we've seen over the last uh, couple of months is that, yeah, they sure do. And that's happened pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, I think he's also signaling that they 
will use communication. This is very consistent with what Bernanke said during the 2013 uh, tapering period, where he emphasized the role of communication at the Fed, um, and that they're going to use that as their first lever, and perhaps they could achieve some of the tightening of conditions without actually going to policy tools. And so, you know, I, I think it's really hard to picture and visualize, you know, when inflation normalizes, how we get to a balance, because no one really knows what happens with COVID. But the, the last thing I'd say before throwing it out to you guys is there's this uh, base rate effect that amplified the forces of inflation last year, having year over year comps versus a very uh, disinflationary period that will be harder to maintain the rates that we're seeing today as the base, uh, as we lap year over year comps that are, uh, you know, what you'd call easy and they get tougher and, and create a headwind on inflation. So I'm very much thinking it's transitory. I'm open mind to being wrong. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to set that out there and hear what you guys think, how you're thinking about this period of time and what happens next. I think the word transitory will go down in infamy. I think it was kind of a throwaway description, for lack of a better word, that's been taken out in public and beaten like a dead horse over and over and over again. I mean, I, I guess it was ill-considered from that regard, but I... My biggest takeaway from it is I, you know, I really don't care that much because I always think about inflation. I want to be thinking about inflation more when other people aren't thinking about it because that's probably when the risks are biggest. And so it's kind of funny to me in a way, I guess, to watch this all unfold because a certain subsegment of people have been banging the hyperinflation drum since the first round of expansionary, expansionary Fed balance sheet policies in 2007 and 2008. And I remember way back then being brand new to this world thinking, you know, wow, this is really kind of uncharted waters. It's never happened before. And a lot of the old timers just couldn't wrap their head around it for good reason, because they literally not contemplated it much. And it led a lot of people to take action on that basis where they expected kind of immediate cause and effect inflation or hyperinflation in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. And of course it didn't happen. And that was a great lesson in how complicated this really is. And I think the current environment is way more complicated than it was even back then. I mean, I could argue this all day from both sides and not come to even anything re resembling a firm conclusion whatsoever. I, I think as to the great debate of whether or not inflation will prove transitory or not? My answer is a firm both, or maybe, right? Because I think certain elements of it are like trying to put the genie back in the bottle. I don't think once you give people a raise, you can easily take that back, right? You basically have to fire people. Um, and that, that's usually a last resort. Once you use a ton of monetary stimulus in the economy, that money's out there. And it's really hard to remove that money from the economy and, and politicians and even Fed officials are very unwilling to do that. So that that sort of stuff I would put in the permanent camp. But, you know, as a generally glass, glass half full kind of person, I don't expect all of the impacts of COVID to last forever in the sense that, you know, the shocks to the system and the labor disruptions and all the supply chain stuff that can eventually be fixed, I do expect that to eventually get fixed. And so, you know, that, that could help. I think the things that drove inflation so low for so many years, namely the 
deflationary, at least the disinflationary trends in a lot of the technology that we use every day, a lot of the labor market dynamics, the population and demographic situation, none of that's really changed, or at least as it pertains to inflation, it's been almost exacerbated or continued. Um, so I, I, th- I think there's so much pull and, and push here that it's it's really hard to say. And so I'm actually writing about this literally as we are recording this today about in, in my annual letter. And so what do you do as an investor? Uh, my short answer is avoid anything that's going to get killed if inflation were to continue and persist or accelerate. And that's kind of an evergreen statement and kind of a no kidding type statement. I mean, but I think it was forgotten for a long time because inflation was so quiescent for so many years. Uh, I do always enjoy finding a good company with pricing power. And that's probably never been more important than today. I mean, if inflation persists, there's, there's no better defense against it than a company that can you know, grow its top line and, and protect its margin in real terms. And that's really hard in most commodity businesses. I write about uh, treadmill spending, uh, which is certainly not a concept I came up with, but it's a very important one whereby you just have to spend ever more uh, higher amounts of money in, in nominal terms just to keep up in real terms in the business world, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster in an inflationary world. So, you know, th- those are kind of the my answers to the question, but unfortunately they're not really anything too definitive. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, to add a little bit of my own uh, thoughts on this, even though I don't think we're gonna solve anything um, in this discussion, maybe we can, uh, you know, just, uh, guide people a little bit as to what our what our thinking looks like here. But I think the word transitory is um, is really misplaced, mainly because um, you know, after a period of inflation, even if you go to zero inflation, you don't go back to the prior uh, price level. You know inflation this year increases the price level forever unless we have the same amount of of uh, deflation in the following period, you know, the cost of living has has gone up forever. So calling it transitory is 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 misleading because for a lot of folks, especially uh, that are not so well to do economically, um, they're going to have to be paying higher prices for forever. And uh, chances are that we're going to keep having inflation. I think the 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 only question is how much. Um, it's also true, I mean, on the other hand, that productivity growth, innovation, and there are a lot of forces that are disinflationary. That's why we've had, you know, a couple of decades of very benign inflation. Um, and there are some innovations coming down the pike that could be very disinflationary. I mean, if some of the innovations on the energy side, um, pan out, like like nuclear fusion or things like that. They're kind of science fiction right now, but there are some startups being funded in this area. I mean, if you could get super cheap energy, um, that would be hugely disinflationary. But, you know, we're clearly not there yet right now or anytime soon. And I think what, um, what, what I'm kind of observing is that no one I know is reducing their consumption but everyone wants to reduce production. You know, it's kind of like virtue signaling when you say, 
We shouldn't be producing oil or burning coal or doing any of these things and don't invest in that. But none of us are really reducing our consumption of energy. And, you know, it's just basic economics. If supply goes down, but demand does not, you're going to need to price a portion of the demand out of the market. And that is inflation. And, and, and lastly, I would just say that, you know, inflation may be one of those things where um, it doesn't really lend itself to be to being a, a total contrarian, you know, like oh, I'm going to worry about inflation when no one else is, um, because inflation actually can kind of gather its own momentum and a future inflation is in part driven by inflation expectations. And so if everyone's talking about inflation, if everyone's worried about inflation, that is actually a risk factor to having higher inflation because people are going to start uh, demanding higher wages, raising prices, whatnot. Um, and so it's not just empty talk. If, if everyone's worried about inflation, I think it that kind of um, mindset can become endemic and that after a while needs to get broken by really decisive action like uh, Paul Volcker. Uh, took. Uh, but obviously, that's very far in the future if, if we get there. I think that's what's so interesting is who's going to play the role of Paul Volcker if, if it becomes necessary, because I don't know if such a person exists. And and I, I'm glad you clarified that, by the way, too, about the kind of inherent feedback loop of expectations as it pertains to inflation. That's an important point that I didn't touch on or should have addressed earlier, which is that I think Maybe I'm wrong about this. There's no way to really quantify, but it certainly seems like when you look at consumer surveys and kind of sample the the zeitgeist out there that people are really focused on inflation. I did see something that's kind of funny, though, because I think you're right. I mean, you can't be a total contrarian about it just because everybody's worried about it doesn't mean now's the time to ignore it because it could get obviously even worse from here. I think the point I was trying to make is that the best time to prepare for the flood is before it starts raining, right? And so if you've waited until now, you know, you've probably incurred some pain on that front, but it's never too late to, to finish the job. And, and to that point, I saw a survey, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, it may have been Fortune, I'd have to go back and look. And it was uh, a survey of C-level business executives, you know, what are your biggest concerns for 2022? They always conduct it right at the end of the year. And uh, last year, inflation was number 22 on the list. This year, it's number two. So, you know, I, I guess it's safe to say that a year ago, people weren't as worried about it as they should have been. And now they're pretty worried about it. And we'll see where that lands on the list next year. Yeah. So both you guys hit on the transitory as like kind of a weird phrasing. And I would just give a little more context and history to that, because where the word emerged in this inflation debate, I think has some important recent history. It was in 2011 when Bernanke used the word transitory as Trichet hiked interest rates uh, in the face of you know, oil spiking while still in the wake of the great financial crisis. And you know, um, where it really comes into play is more so in terms of uh, will there be a central bank error that causes more damage uh, one way or another? Um, so I think it's it's worth thinking about in that sense. Um, and Bernanke was proven right at the time. Who knows what will happen this time? Although it's interesting that uh, across in Europe, uh, Lagarde is emphasizing the kind of opposite message 
of uh, Powell here in the US. And perhaps that's more appropriate this time than it was last. Two other things that I think are worth thinking about, one related to the central bank is, you know, it's not, what's kind of funny is you find a lot of people, I think everyone's priors are confirmed here, no matter what they think. You know, if you believed that there wasn't really an inflationary impulse from the monetary policy, you don't believe this to be enduring, guilty as charged. Um, And if you believed that the monetary policy would be inflationary, then, you know, you think this proves you're exactly right. Um, And, you know, uh, one of the, ironies of this all is it doesn't look like a monetary phenomenon because you don't actually see a really uh, sharp increase in the velocity of money. It's actually still down quite a bit. Um, So, you know, maybe I think that does add some uh, amplified uh, force to the transitory argument. And then, John, that's an interesting point on inflation. I I would offer another side of the worrying uh, cascading effect, the snowball effect, um, you know, I tend to be a believer that the more people are worried about something, the less it actually is as a risk. Um, and I, I do know that I, I do sense that inflation could be a little different than the typical worry on that front, because it does tend to factor into how people behave. And there could be a feedback loop that kicks off. But, you know, the more people worry about things, the more they act in ways that might be consistent with preventing it from happening. So, you know, I, I just don't know. Uh, but that's that's something I tend to think as as not a universal law, but but more of a rule about a lot of a lot of things. Yeah, I don't know either. And I guess that's where I continue to shake out on it, but I'll I'll bang the drum one more time. We've probably talked about this five times at least in the last year and a half. And that's just that when you don't know the outcome, but you know the odds that are priced in and the odds really suck, you should just avoid it, right? And that's how I view almost all of fixed income these days, because if inflation sticks around at these levels or accelerates, uh, it's really hard to imagine existing or prior bond owners doing particularly well, and a lot of them are going to get absolutely crushed. So that seems like an easy implication. And you know, it, it may seem obvious, but it's still very true and worth thinking about and, you know, what, what the implications are there to your own portfolio or to companies' portfolios, to budget situations and fiscal policy and all sorts of things, because, you know, that's, that's one unmistakable outcome here that's going to get really ugly if inflation sticks around and rates go way up. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. Uh, I think, you know, there's this perception that because there's everyone's worried about inflation, that that's reflected in the market somehow, but it's actually not reflected at all in the bond market. You look at, you know, 30-year um, yields on, on government debt, they're in the low single digits in the U.S. In Europe, they're virtually at zero. And, uh, you know, that is uh, just ridiculous pricing, if given what's going on. Yeah, it's worth pointing out, right? I mean, if, if you really have a strong view and you're acting on it, you're crystallizing a bet that says the most liquid market in the world is dead wrong. And it's the most liquid market in the world where you know fiscal policy and Fed intervention plays a very significant role. So yeah, I look, I agree. I if you really put a gun to my head, I might put 5149 odds or you know, something potentially quite a bit higher than that, I guess. Um on you know inflation really cooling off in the next couple of years i mean it 
if you really think anything like the mid to high single digit inflation we've seen in the last 12 months is going to stick around, then you might as well make a George Soros style bet and just put it all on short treasuries or something, right? Because the, the bond market's just completely, totally dead wrong. But I certainly would never do that with my own money. I don't have that reason to believe that. I don't have the confidence behind that that sort of view. So, but it, it, you do need to crystallize what that implies, right? I mean, are, are you really that confident that the the bond market's just completely and totally dead wrong? Yeah, that's such an interesting point, John, because you know the bond guys always like to say they're the smart ones in the room and the equity guys are the dummies. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, how the bond, the yield curve is actually, you know, steepening a bit through this, um, which is, you know, it's not getting crazy, but it's the opposite of what you'd expect um, if inflation were really a concern right now. Uh, well, it's not the opposite of what you'd expect if inflation were concerned, but you'd expect to see the long end moving, budging a lot more than it is um, and not being merely where it was like right before COVID. Um, so yeah, you got to wonder what the signals are, the conflicting signals between the constant drum beating of concerns about inflation and equities without much of a whisper in bonds at all. Who's right? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I think before we uh, send the wrong illusion that we <laughs> have any knowledge of the future or, or strong, uh, strongly held beliefs here, um, you know, I think it's just fair to say that Great to exchange views on this topic, but um, you know everyone needs to know that uh, no one can predict this, and anyone who says they can is just uh, posturing. So, you know, in my in my book, it makes sense to look for things that would protect you in such a scenario, like Phil said, uh, you know, businesses with pricing power and so forth. Uh, but to think that you can actually predict it, I think, is uh, is just wrong. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you have to be really careful with what could happen and what you need to worry about, which is what I'm trying to do and making explicit predictions where if you get it wrong, there's a lot of negative consequences. All right, great. So why don't we move on to uh, Phil, your topic, please. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I wanted to talk today about what's been going on elsewhere in the market, which is the big drawdown we've seen in some individual uh, high-flying companies. You know, some people are characterizing it as a fallen angels kind of situation. These are mostly that's technically a bond term. These are mostly equity prices that have declined sharply, and as well the related concept of investing in unprofitable companies. Because for the last couple of years, we've seen this massive explosion in bets on the future, and a lot of those bets on the future entailed companies that were not yet showing. Uh, short-term historical profits based on their existing businesses, but investors were extremely willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and push things out in terms of valuations they were willing to pay. Uh, so, you know, what what I guess it boils down to for me is like, where do you draw the line? And so this is where I'm curious to solicit your opinions and views on this, because I look back at some of the big mistakes that I have made and some of the mistakes I would have made and they often entail a lack of simple imagination, right? Where I knew enough to make the leap between X and Y, but I didn't because the the recent past or you know the near future wasn't as crystal clear as I'd like it to be. And, and by the way, just as a public service announcement at the beginning of this, this is not an episode of Schadenfreude. I apologize for my pronunciation there, especially to John, but um, 
is, is someone who speaks the, the German that would be required. But the, the, I'm trying to tease out the lessons here as to as to what we should take away from this because the pain has been pretty astounding, and I think it's really interesting for me at, at a detached level to look at what's been going on I, at, at a personal level. I, I couldn't care less if someone else is doing well or doing poorly because that doesn't really teach you much. It doesn't help you make better decisions from the future. And, and certainly if there was a point in life where I would have enjoyed being on the quote right side of things or watching somebody else who'd flown too close to the sun, get knocked down a peg, you know, I'm thankfully long past that. I mean, I, you know, enjoying in someone, enjoying someone else's downfall is just a miserable, miserable way to exist. And, and I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. So that's not the spirit of this at all. The spirit of it is to look at some really unusual, really interesting things that have been going on and figure out what it means for the future. So as most people are probably aware, cash burning companies have seen their share prices just get absolutely torched in the last 90 days. For whatever reason, if you look back to kind of September, October of 2021 through this period, as we're recording this on January 20th of 2022, there's just been an absolute bloodbath in a lot of companies. Uh, a study that I read the other day had taken the loss-making companies in the NASDAQ composite index and showed that it was down 28% just in those roughly 85 days, uh, while profitable companies were, were basically flat. They were down less than 1%. Their definition of that was an EPS below zero for at least the last four quarters combined. Uh, that's an imperfect measure, of course. You could debate that all day. I think the point still stands. Um, and they also excluded uh, pre-merger SPACs. Uh, although I'd point out, I mean, in, in a related note, that there's several ETFs that track pre-merger SPACs and, you know, they've been crushed as well. I mean, one that I looked up was down something like 26% last year, while the S&P 500 was up 29%. So I think that's fair to say that's a pretty big underperformance. But, you know, look back at some of these numbers going back either kind of 12 months from today or going back roughly 24 months, let's call it February 1st of 2020, right at the edge of the pandemic coming in to dominate our lives. Over the last 12 months, to set the baseline, it's weird, right? I mean, the S&P 500 was up more than 20%, about 22% over the last 12 months. Like I said, it was up almost 28, 29% in calendar 2021. The NASDAQ was up a good bit less than that. And over the last 12 months, the, the Russell 2000 is actually down a little bit, which is shocking. But look at some of these numbers. Uh, Rivian, which was one of the highest flying IPOs, is now down 15%. Since its IPO price, DocuSign, which actually has you know pretty useful, pretty interesting technology, was down 50% over that period. Uh, Robinhood was down 62%. Poshmark was down 78%. Zoom, that we're using right now to record this, down 57%. Peloton, which we're going to come back to, down 75%. The Arc Innovation ETF was down 47%. I mean, those are some real bloodbaths and. It's going to be really hard for investors to stomach that volatility and ride the train back up the hill, assuming that's what's eventually even going to happen. Right? I mean, this is kind of where I'm going with this is how do you stomach this volatility? This volatility is actually very dangerous. I went through a period where as soon as I sort of learned the academic theory of finance and investing and then how flawed it was from a practitioner's perspective, and I was very dismissive of this notion as volatility equated to risk, but I've almost come full circle on it because you see how much it does impact real people's behaviors, myself included. I mean, when you take a punch to the face like this, you can really do some goofy counterproductive things. Um, what, what's also interesting though, is if you look back roughly two years ago to the, to the very beginning of the pandemic, 
you still have some interesting stuff. Um, you know, DocuSign's still up a lot. Zoom's up a lot. Um, Peloton, on the other hand, is actually down. And so I, it's, I ran these numbers as of a couple of days ago. Um, but just today, Peloton had some pretty negative news come out that they were ceasing product, production potentially. It's now below its pre-COVID price. It's below its IPO price. And, and I guess that's where I kind of want to take this is, you know, where, where do you draw the line between the kind of first order thinking and the positive feedback loops, which John rightly pointed out in the debate on inflation, because those can absolutely matter for a long period of time. I mean, it, it hit me right over the head in 2020 and 2021 that this current undercurrent of sentiment can really drive its own uh, realities for a while, the reflexivity of it all, right? And I, I'll never forget when people were telling me about buying Pelotons and then buying the stock because it'll pay for itself. And, you know, I'm just waiting for X and Y to happen because it's so obvious that I'm going to make a fortune on it. And, and the first order thinking that really dominated the day versus the really, really significant negative long-term implications of what was going on. And, and again, I hate to beat up on Peloton, but I, I we've talked about it so much, or I've talked about it so much over the last year and a half, you know, it, it's worth revisiting it, right? Because there was just every sort of red flag out there you could have ever wanted, right? I mean, management got the production issues wrong in both directions, right? They were undersupplied when they needed it, and now they're oversupplied when they don't. They were spewing all sorts of nonsense and talking about how they sell happiness. And I mean, it's a stationary bicycle, right? I mean, it's not selling happiness. That's that's total fluff and nonsense. Uh, the ad campaigns they ran that were just disastrous and so cringe-inducing in every possible way. And I'm talking about before the recent debacle with uh, Mr. Big on the Sex and the City reboot. Uh, the 13-year estimated average life of a subscriber that they were using in their self-promoted investor relations metrics that was just categorically ridiculous. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, th this could have worked out differently, I'm sure, but that would have proven ridiculous 99.9% .9 of the time. I mean, there's just no reason to believe that anybody's going to continue to pay for a subscription for an exercise product for over 13 years. It's never happened before. There's no reason to believe it's going to happen again anytime soon. So, you know, I guess this is where I want to kick it over to you guys is where do I draw the line between a company that has a bright future, but is making a loss now and a company that's just better left, you know, until later, even if I give up some of the upside. So of course, what everybody loves to point, point to is something like Amazon or Costco or Home Depot or, uh, you know, I don't know, some of the other big home runs where of course they posted losses early on and even for a period of years. And that's great. And I guess where I draw the line is that those companies were self-financing they didn't need to go back to the capital markets all the time and their investors weren't out and their insiders weren't out dumping stock on the market and where the unit economics made sense because, you know, again, I don't understand how a two to $3,000 home exercise piece of equipment ever really made sense at scale, but a Costco store or Amazon's online retailing effort or whatever, those always made sense, right? It was just a question of what's the right price to pay and how long do you have to wait for it, which is hard enough, right? But when the unit economics don't make sense, when the business isn't self-financing and when insiders are dumping stock, I mean, those just seem like a bright line test for me. So what do you guys, what do you guys think? So I have a lot of thoughts, but no answers. And it's something I've been struggling with myself and I'll get to that in a second. Um, I first, I would 
take a little bit of the other side on Peloton insofar as when I first heard about Peloton, which was uh, when a friend's cousin, you know, led the angel round, I was like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And fast forward to the early pandemic and, you know, my wife was working from home and no longer going to her office gym. And I have had a spin bike in the basement for over a decade used regularly so I was resistant. She's like, let's get a Peloton. And I love the thing and I'm addicted. I do the strength classes as well. So not just the uh, bike classes. And I think it's one of the best products I've experienced. It's way, I, I thought it was on par with prior spin bikes. I, I think there's a big market for it. I think they got way over their skis in forecasting demand. And where I draw the line on unprofitable versus uh, on unprofitable businesses, I think you got to it. You said unit economics. It's all about the unit economics. For me, I don't want to go near a company uh, where they need more scale to make the unit economics work. But if they have proven unit economics and they're investing with disciplined ROI and driving upwards their customer or store base, that to me is a good recipe. And I think, you know, that discipline and driving things forward is where Peloton fell short because their economics do work. Their subs actually are quite valuable. Um, Maybe not 13 years long, but I think they'll stick around. And, you know, I'd imagine a household like mine where, you know, even my seven-year-old really wants to use it badly, you know, we'll end up with several amongst the four of us one day uh, in the future. But, you know, you can't just invest over your skis in other fixed costs, not in scaling your unit economics. That was like just atrocious management. Now, in terms of like this general environment and the punishment that uh, unprofitable companies are taking, I'd argue it goes way beyond merely unprofitable companies. And I say that as someone who's sitting here for the first time in my career, I'm holding something like Roku, where, you know, in the beginning of January 2021, I sold a portion of my position and had a, a client be like, why would you sell any of that? This thing's done so well for us. You know, I, I presented this at MOI in, in January uh, of 2019 in the Best Ideas Conference for context of how long I've been involved in this thing. Um, sold a little and it's like, why would you sell any of that? I'm like, oh yeah, I know, tough tax it, whatever. Um, and you know, you fast forward to the end of the year at a different client, like what, how are you so stupid that you didn't sell all of that position when it was much higher. And by the way, it has not had a good start to the year. And I've really been wrapping my head over because I have Roku will be is profitable for the first time in its history. They've been generating cash flow while trying not to be profitable. They have unit economics that actually work that you could kind of break down pretty cleanly on a uh, household basis. Um, so it is a real business. It, you know, you can see exactly where the cash flow is coming from. Management's been disciplined and in investing toward it. But hey, you know, it's been trashed with everything else. And, you know, I think one of the other questions is it, relatedly is not just like, which ones do you think about from an investment perspective, but how do you think about your ability to hold or not hold something through an experience like that? And what does it do, uh, you know, to, to see that happen? Um, I could tell you, it, it has not been fun. You know, a couple of the stacks that I've talked about here, PayPal is another one where it's like, they're very profitable. They have really high margins. Like it's a pretty sound business, but um, you know the market has uh, treated it like some of these other unprofitable companies. So I think there is some sort of combination of 
I don't think it's merely about these companies being unprofitable. I think it's about like the difficulties in extrapolating the trends from COVID and to what extent are some of these trends uh, going to regress to trend as opposed to mean, right? To revert back to their prior trend level. And it seems like that's something that's happened already in e-commerce sales in particular uh, versus to what extent did like excess earnings in that period perhaps bring in new competition to some of these names? I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, I, I think you go back to our episode, I think it was like maybe four weeks ago where I talked about the difficulties and challenges of forecasting your business in a time like this. And I think that's part of what I think about too. Um, and then you do add in the fact that yes, in this environment, there was a lot of speculation. There was junk that absolutely uh, did not deserve to be where it was. Like you mentioned Rivian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was uh, Nicola, which I think is even you know crazier to see and have witnessed than was Rivian. Um, you know, there there's uh, I, I think just a lot of weirdness and I, I don't have answers, but I have definitely, uh, felt what you're talking about, Phil, where it's like, how do you stomach some of this volatility? My God, having ridden, uh, the, the Roku train for quite a while now, it's like, um, a great return, but also very hard to manage. Uh, and so, you know, I'll yeah. leave it at that for now and see what else yeah, comes, comes I have to a mind couple. here. Yeah, I have a couple of reactions to that that I think you, you raised that were good points and, and a couple of things. One is I don't think this is all just a story about junk or not junk, right? I, so let's take something like Rivian. I, I, I'm rooting for Rivian to succeed. I'd love to see this country produce another good manufacturer of electric vehicles. Like that'd be great. And they've got some amazing backers behind them, seemingly some good executives that are not unlike Nikola being disingenuous it's just kind of crazy that this is a company that's going to be loss making for a long, long period of time and need a lot more capital to get up and going to see the valuation that was afforded it at its IPO and very quickly then taken away. And that's the danger, right? That's where I just don't know where to draw the line. On the flip side of that, to your point about being an early stage investor, look, I think this is one of my uh, weak spots. I think it's why I'd probably be a pretty terrible venture capitalist because you could come to me with lots of ideas that would work out pretty well, and I'd probably pass on almost all of them. And so if you're an early stage investor in Peloton, you're probably still going to end up with a great IRR, even though the company's now well below its IPO price and has been a loss maker for almost all of its public market investors. But there again, that's the lesson that I'm trying to tease out of this, right? I'm not at all trying to add to the train of people that are dunking on Kathy Wood all the time, like she's getting enough negative attention seemingly every day. But what is pretty astounding is that the ARK Innovation Fund will still have a significantly positive lifetime IRR. But if you take the assets that were in the ETF at the various points along the way and time weighted for the flows in and out, it's now produced a net loss for all of its investors, right? So it has lost more money in raw dollars than it has made in raw dollars, even though the IRR is positive. And that's a really important point that I think a lot of people miss. And that's why value and valuation and price matters. Because if you get that dead wrong, you, you know, it, you're just transferring wealth and you're on the wrong end of that transfer. Uh, the other thing I'd say that, that really strikes me as crazy about this period is that even though there's like been a ton of blood in the streets lately, and a lot of people's performance has really been suffering, I mean, look at some of these numbers, right? I mean, the overall market is still up enormously. The NASDAQ is up 71% on 
over the last two months. The S&P 500, or two months, two years, since the beginning of the pandemic, the S&P 500 is up almost 50% over the last two years over the course of a raging pandemic and all this inflation and everything else that's gone wrong in the world. Like this has been an his, a historic boom in the markets. And now we've had this you know sharp pullback over the last couple of months in some individual names, but even something like Roku that you just brought up, right? I mean, so you said you, you were talking about that in January of 19, is that right? So I mean, from that point, it's still like what, quintupled or more? So I mean, this has not been some sort of loser over that period of time, despite the recent painful, sharp sell-off, it's just had a big spike and then it's had a partial pullback and you know that's kind of life. And you know, to, to further the point there, I mean, I, that is one where it's really just a question about valuation because there's a very real business that's self-financing there. And it's not a business that needs to go out and continually issue equity, um, or in the case of Peloton, say they don't need to issue equity right before they do issue equity. So, you know, that that to me is you know one of the places where I would try to draw the line. Yeah, one of the things I struggle with, just to put it succinctly, is like you know I've always uh, been gearing myself to be a long-term investor in things and hold with very low turnover. Uh, at time, I, I formerly put out an explicit turnover target. I've since you know tried to soften that to make sure it doesn't become uh, a constraint in the wrong way. But, you know, you sit there thinking like, okay, this thing's due for a period of digestion, which means it probably goes sideways for three years. And instead it goes down 60%. The consequences of sideways three years versus down 60% in short order are very different and feel very different psychologically. And it's like, you know, that, that, that's one of the challenges. So that's, that's the question. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to frame it. And another kind of twist on that, that I use to look back and say, was I right or was I wrong? Because I can look back at decisions I made two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's really hard to say, was that a good decision or a bad decision? Just because you can't play the pure counterfactual. The world changed, the odds along the way were shifting. But I think a good way to kind of account for some of that is if I had been in a coma for that whole period of time and unable to act on those shifting odds, did I have enough room for error at the beginning such that I still got a good result? And so that's where, I mean, it, it speaks to both sides of this, right? Because if you had made an investment as a Series A investor in Peloton, you should still be really happy, even though as a public market investor, you're probably pretty miserable. So, it, you know, it just depends on who you are, where you invested, what price you paid, and, and how much you can kind of shut your eyes to the volatility swirling around you and, and avoid being overly influenced by it. Yeah, I guess I'd just add, you know, generally have a really tough time with unprofitable businesses. I don't know what the base rates are for something like Amazon uh, happening and actually picking that kind of a, a winner. Um, you know, for me, it's actually easier to pick um, unprofitable businesses in cyclicals where I believe, hey, when that cycle turns, these guys are going to make a ton of money again. Um, I, I can see that you know, investing in unprofitable businesses that are doing something new like a Peloton, and this doesn't apply to Peloton, but just uh, those types of companies, I think if they're in clearly scale advantage industries, maybe where there's going to be a natural monopoly, a dynamic, a winner take all, um, you can make the case that you want to be with that um, 800 pound gorilla, even if it's unprofitable right now. Uh, but again, I have a tough time you know, distinguishing between that kind of a company versus a company that actually 
looks like uh, it could be that dominant, but actually is is not going to get anywhere close to that. Um, I think you know Tesla is an example where people disagree, but I feel like yeah, I can see how you know that's a really important sector, and um, and and that there could be a big winner there. But I also think that you know the the existing uh, automakers have such huge resources um, that you know they're going to put up a very very stiff fight and uh and they have brands they have knowledge of, of the auto business so i i just couldn't make any kind of a a long bet on tesla for sure but if you know you look at the valuation even if if this company ends up being uh dominant uh, it's not clear you're going to make money as a shareholder um i think in terms of you know the volatility and 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 all of that i i, I feel like because of the success of some high-profile long-term compounders like Amazon, and then the, the bull market that we've had over the past couple of years, there's also almost been kind of a little bit of a fetishism around buy and hold. And um, a lot of people who maybe have a value mindset when they buy into a stock became a lot less valuation sensitive when it comes to holding on or trimming uh, then I think um, you know value investors uh, have been in the past, and uh, but you know you have examples like Buffett not selling Coke uh, back in um, the late 1990s, uh, which admittedly was a mistake. But um, I feel like you know if you actually are valuation sensitive at least to some degree. Um, you know, you could uh, do much better than just a buy and hold strategy because sometimes these things do get ridiculous and then they can actually go down substantially before, again, they embark on a multi-year uptrend. Um, yeah, so those are just a few. I needed this talk from you, John, seven months ago, <laughs> maybe a year ago. Yeah, easy for me to say now, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the point, right? It's very easy to say that's kind of where I was getting at. Like, it's so hard to look back and say, did I make a mistake or was I just, uh, you know, slightly wrong in a way that I can live with? Did I just get victimized by, you know, the odds that I knew were there and, and you know, the one in four chance turned up or something like that? I mean, it's it's really, really hard. But I think I've gotten better over the years at just being willing to draw the line around things where I'm just perfectly happy to be wrong. And, you know, I mean, it, one inescapable truth that has just continued to come up over the last year or two as I look at some of these types of companies is that if you're making losses today, you know, they, they must be actually made up in the future in terms of the present value, right? I mean, I, I talk about this in my MBA class. Like, it, can we all agree that the price you should be willing to pay is the discounted present value of all future cash flows? And everybody agrees, right? Yes, that's true. Like, and, and so let's hope because if we don't agree on that, we need to have a different conversation. But if we agree that that's the case, then we need to start talking about what those future cash flows are going to be and at what discount rate to discount them back. And that's where things, of course, get interesting. And I think what's been so amazing is people's willingness to suspend disbelief as it pertains to some of those, right? I mean, you, their own numbers don't justify the prices that they were paying for some of these companies. And yet they persisted because the narrative or the momentum or the belief or whatever just kind of carried them along. And that to me, I guess, is the ultimate lesson here is you just can't, you can't let that happen as tempting as it can be. And by the way, I'll just add one thing where 
you know, I talk about the the buy and hold not being so great um, if you're valuation insensitive, but I make the much worse mistake, which is I tend to sell out too early. So I'm too valuation sensitive. And I guarantee you that I've missed out on a lot more um, and, and therefore lost more money uh, than someone who maybe holds on too long. Because uh, if you don't actually make money on ideas that you're right on, then I think that's the ultimate mistake. Yeah, I agree. That's an easy mistake to make. That's pretty related. That's a good point. Yeah, that's the toughest struggle. You know, Buffett's told about uh, how some of his biggest mistakes are of omission, which I, I view, you know, like maybe selling, not selling Coke, but also not holding certain things, uh, like not holding Disney from when he had it, for example. Not not buying Walmart, not buying Costco, right? Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think one of the answers I take away from this all is it is not supposed to be easy. Right. You will go one year saying my biggest mistake was not holding things. And you'll go the next year saying my biggest mistake was holding everything. And, um, you know, it's it's really hard to make sure that you take the right lessons out of things and focus first and foremost on process over outcomes every step of the way. And I think that's what we need to distill. And, you know, uh, one of my friends said to me, like, the key is don't reflect on these things from inside yourself, reflect on them from outside yourself and make make sure you're looking at it with a degree of separation and honest perspective. Because I do think, you know, like you're saying, John, you you could say on the one hand, yeah, you know, we got to be valuation sensitive and sell. And on the other hand, you know, part of saying I sold too early is, yeah, I was rightly valuation sensitive at the moment I sold, but it did something to catalyze and justify a yet higher valuation down the line. Um, And I'll go back to Roku. Like when I... the first time Roku got expensive, um, within a year of me buying it, it was at 60 bucks, but it was not worth 60 bucks at the time in my framework, though, because of my tax sensitivities, I was like, I'm not going to sell yet. But if you fast forward 12 months later, $60 at that time was like a really, really like screaming buy. <laughs> and so, you know, it's really hard to have that perspective at the time. And it, I, I think it's just hard to get right. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the balance that's so hard to strike, and I think um, you know investors look, keep learning and relearning that for their whole investing lives. So I think we're condemned to uh, never really find that answer, but hopefully get a little bit closer to it over time. Guys, thank you so much for another fascinating discussion. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.